Welcome to NephHacks, high-yield nephrology at your fingertips. This is your host, Andrew Kowalski. I'm the founder of NephHacks, and I'm also a practicing nephrologist. Please visit us at www.nephhacks.com. That's N-E-P-H-H-A-C-K-S dot com. Also, join us on our Facebook group where I'll be posting updates on our podcast as well as general updates in the field of nephrology. Let's get ready to make nephrology fun again. Hey, and welcome back to another podcast. So we've talked a lot about hyponatremia, and we talked a lot about the intricacies. So you can see that it's, it's like an onion. It's multi-layered. There's a lot to learn. But the nice thing is, is that once we start talking about the physiology aspect of it, it ends up being a lot more manageable. So now instead of following algorithms, you know, you look at the urinosomes, you look at the urine sodium, you look at the patient, you can start putting together what the patient needs, what the patient requires, and what possibly could have happened. So on our last podcast, we definitely focused on the different aspects of volume and how urine sodium and urine osms play a big role. And then we ended on uvolemic hyponatremia, where it's basically an ADH release. So what I was mentioning towards the end of the last podcast was that ideally for fluid restriction in a uvolemic um, SIADH patient, you want to aim for 500 cc's less than the urine output. The problem is that's not feasible because it's very difficult to collect urine output unless the patient has a Foley and uh, chronic Foley and you can measure accurately. Other than that, there's always mishaps where the patient, you know, voids in the toilet or dumps the urine collection, dumps the hat, dumps the urine jug, and we're missing a collection and then there's a guess as to how much there was. So what I tend to do is just say, hey, it's easier just to go less than one liter of fluid. Because if you're consuming, on average, two liters of fluid a day, less than one liter would be more than appropriate. And why would that work? And this kind of gets to how hyponatremia works. So if you look at this gross section of the glom, you see that there is a glomerulus proximal tubule, loop of Henle, and distal tubule collecting duct. So as you're moving down the concentration gradient and the medullary cortical junction, what you see is you're removing water, so the concentration decreases, right? So as you're rounding and you're removing all this water, the concentration drops. And as you loop around, water reabsorption stops, and now you only have solute. So solute reconstitutes the concentration gradient. And then when you get down to here, you have your aquaporins, and your aquaporins add water. So your aquaporins are further down. It starts adding water. And then luckily, you have urea towards the bottom right, to maintain that concentration gradient. You have urea reabsorption. So the higher the concentration or the ability of the kidney to reconstitute the concentration gradient allows for more water to get pulled out. Okay, so how do you change this? Well, first off, when we're talking about these uvolemic patients, SADA patients, we have, to, we have to know that from a urine perspective, you cannot urinate free water and you cannot urinate powder or salts, right? You know, there's always some liquid that has to be expelled and voided. So what ends up happening is during daily metabolism, your body is going to pull 
water from other compartments to make urine out of. So you can expel the contents that are being, or that are being made through daily metabolism. So by decreasing the water intake, well, daily metabolism is still taking place and the patient is still eating. So now that there's less than a liter of fluid being taken in, you're going to have to remove maybe a liter of fluid to maintain that two liter urine output per day. That's usually what we experience because we take in two liters in. So each day the patient's going to drop about a liter of free water. Now, in addition, it's going to be a little bit more than that because the patient has what we call is insensible losses. So each day through breathing, we lose about half a liter to three quarters of a liter of water just by breathing, talking, so forth. And then if you're sick, febrile, it's probably more than that. It's probably over a liter. So you also have that playing a role. So here's a little brain spin. If you have a patient and you're not sure where they land, right, in any of these categories, and you make them NPO. Now, I'm not saying it's the best idea, you know, for any of these, well, maybe for one of them, but if let's just say you make them NPO, each one of these categories will correct. Based on the purpose of you're always going to have filtration because you're always going to have cardiac output and 20% of the cardiac output is going to be delivered to the uh, proximal tubule or through the glomerulus and into the proximal tubule. You're going to have water reabsorption. You're going to have solute because these people, well, at this point, they're not eating, right? But they're still generating daily metabolism, right? They're still making creatinine. They're still making BUN from whatever breakdown if they have gluconeogenesis and you're going to have breakdown of byproducts. So all this has to be removed. So by doing that, the body has to pull water from other compartments to expel it. So just by making the patient's NPO, you will fix them. Again, not the best idea in a lot of these scenarios, right? Especially in the hypovolemic folks. But it will work because you're tricking the system. The kidney cannot put out pure solute. It has to move water with it. So less than a liter might be a little aggressive, but at least you can guarantee that they're going to be net negative. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you and I on a daily basis consume about you know, a liter and a half to two liters of fluid. Think about people that are now in the hospital bed. There's not much to do. It's not like they're going anywhere. They're not engaging in any yard activity or any intramural sports. So they're just sitting there watching TV. So they're not really losing much water, right? They're not sweating a lot. They're not losing any, um, they're not having a lot of insensible losses. And now you have your nice nurse or your nice you know, patient care tech who keeps filling up their pitcher of water and the pitcher is about 800 cc's to a liter. And what is the patient going to do? Well, they're going to sip on a little bit of water as they're watching TV. So it's very easy for patients to consume north of two and a half liters a day. So restricting them to less than a liter, you can guarantee that even if there is a mishap in some extra fluid being brought in or a pitcher being filled up or, you know, there's an extra juice carton on their food tray, they're still going to be in the negative range. That's why I aim for a liter or less. So I think that's the safest thing. So I talked about we have this section right here, and there's two things that I didn't mention. And this is the tea and toast and beer potomania. So tea and toast and beer potomania are very similar. Actually, they are similar. It's the exact same thing. There's just different mechanisms to get there. So first things first, with tea and toast, 
what do we have? We have an individual consuming, okay? And what happens? So there's food with very little solute. That's basically what tea and toast implies. It's very little solute intake. So as your contents get filtered in the glomerulus and you get reabsorption and then you have water reabsorption, then you have solute reabsorption, there's a point where you can only reabsorb so much because there's not a lot of solute that they're taking in. So let's say right here you decrease, it goes from 200 to 100, here is 300 to 200 and so forth, but you might only be able to reconstitute, instead of 300 you get to 250, instead of 200 you get to 150 and then you're pulling out more fluid and then you're bringing it back, pulling out more fluid. So basically your concentration gradient decreases. You know, you're not able to reconstitute. And you're not adding the urea, so that's not helping. So now your maximum concentration will probably drop to 800 or even 600, okay? So what happens here? You're not able to remove a lot of the fluid or you're not really able to reconstitute the concentration gradient. So when you get to this point, you know, this is your macula densa. You're going to have the flow, but you're not going to have the concentration of chloride there because the concentration of chloride is going to be low, right? So chloride is going to be low. What's going to happen? RAS gets stimulated, right? Just like here, just like when we were talking about the other mechanism. RAS gets stimulated, and that's going to lead to sodium and water reabsorption. But RAS also leads to... ADH release, right? We talked about that. So ADH is just going to be water. So you're going to have a disproportionate of water to sodium reabsorption. And that's because you have these aquaporin channels that are embedded and you're going to have water pulled in. Now, because the concentration gradient is low, you're not going to get a lot of water in, right? You're going to pull in some water, but only to what the concentration gradient allows you to. And then you're going to expel. So when you look at these individuals and you look at their UA, their spec grav tends to be on the lower side. So it might be 10-10, right? It might be a little less than that. It might be a little dilute. And the urine osms might only be about 350, maybe even 400, because they're not able to really concentrate the urine that much. So again, tea and toast individuals don't develop hyponatremia overnight. It's that little bit of fluid intake that trickles in every so often. And then what ends up happening is one day they're going to have a solute-loaded meal, right? They might end up having saltines instead of salt-free. They end up having a couple bites of chips. Maybe a family member takes this patient out and they go out to eat. All of a sudden, there's a solute load. The concentration gradient improves not necessarily enough to eliminate all of this, and then all of a sudden when their solute intake drops again, you're gonna have RAS stimulation and water increase. So it's over the course of weeks. So in these, right, a lot of this will happen days to weeks. Tea and toast happens weeks. And typically you see it with folks that don't eat a lot, but you see it more in that standard question of an elderly person on a diuretic, usually a thiazide, right, and decreased PO intake. And why is this important? Well, what does a thiazide do? Well, the whole purpose of a thiazide is to volume deplete. So if you're volume depleted, you're stimulating RAS, which means you're stimulating ADH. And if you're stimulating ADH, then ADH is on board way more than what would happen from, this is called a washed out gradient. 
right? So you're not able to reconcentrate. You're not able to reconcentrate the concentration gradient to what it was before, so you wash it out. But now you have RAS on board, so yeah, you're contributing a little bit of sodium and water down here. But again, you're pulling in water. So this is the mechanism. This is why we say thiazides cause hyponatremia. It's because you're volume depleted, which increases RAS, which increases ADH, which then leads to aquaporin embedding in the apical membrane or the tubular membrane, which leads to, um, sorry, basolateral membrane, which leads to water reabsorption into the interstitium. So what do we tend to do? We tend to stop the thiazide, right? But that doesn't fix the problem. You have to stop the thiazide and change PO intake. Or, let's say if you want to do an experiment, probably not the best thing to do in a hospital setting because you want to, you know, obviously fix them and get them out. But let's say you didn't stop the thiazide. All you would really have to do is increase PO intake. Because if you increase PO intake, you're going to increase the solute, the concentration gradient gets reestablished, and you're not going to be pulling in as much fluid because you're going to have to remove a lot of this solute from, as waste products. So a lot of this water has to be utilized for urine output. So yes, you're going to have ADH on board. Yes, you're going to have water reabsorption. Yes, you're going to have a mild hyponatremia, but not nearly as much as if you would be really pushing the thiazide and having a low solute intake at the same time. So that's what's really interesting. So in the tea and toast scenario, it's basically this whole bit, so it's this, it's decreased PO intake without the diuretic and without necessarily having it to be an elderly person. And it's the elderly person because elderly folks tend to eat less, right? I remember having my grandmother always kind of nitpick at her food and then she would say how full she was, but she would like her tea, she would like her coffee, so she would drink a lot of fluids but take in less solute. So in a beer potomania individual, which is right here. This is why I put them in between because they're not necessarily volume down, but they're not necessarily ADH, you know, inappropriate. So it, it is kind of appropriate because of the mechanism that's happening. So that's why I put them in between. And what ends up happening in beer potomania is these individuals will consume a lot of liquid, right? Because that's the beer. You have satiety, so they don't necessarily have a drive to eat. You have a lot of carbohydrates in the beer, so that will be processed into glucose so you know the brain keeps functioning because it has food you're technically semi-satiated because you have the stretch reflex in the stomach and you have your carbohydrate load so you're not really looking for food and you know they tend to you know drink enough and they pass out and whatever so there's a prolonged period of decreased PO intake so what happens Water gets reabsorbed, solute gets somewhat reabsorbed, water gets reabsorbed, solute gets somewhat reabsorbed, and you have a decrease in the concentration gradient. You have a decrease in maximum ability to concentrate. Therefore, when you get up here, you sense low chloride, RAS is activated, ADH is activated, water is pulled in. Every so often, you might take in a meal, right? They might end up having a couple slices of pizza. They might have a couple of burgers, whatever the case may be. Solute load increases, and then solute load drops off again as they're consuming beer because beer doesn't have any electrolytes, doesn't have any protein. It's just carbohydrates. There's no such thing as a vodka protomania because there's no way you're going to be able to drink enough to get to this stage because what's going to happen is you're going to drink, you're going to pass out, and you're not going to feel satiated because you're not going to have the carbohydrate load and you're not going to have that stretch load from all the liquid that you're consuming. So beer potomania will lead to hyponatremia in that setting. And what's really interesting about folks with beer potomania and even this 
attributes to cirrhotics and the TNTOS is when you look at their BUN, their BUN is going to be incredibly low. It's going to be less than 10. Why? BUN is a representation of protein intake. Your protein intake is low. So it's going to be 5, 6, somewhere around there. It's going to be low. That's how you know they're not taking in a lot of food, especially if it's somebody who is bigger in size and you would expect it to be closer to 15 or 20, right? So if you have a if you have a a male 40 years of age who's an alcoholic and they're relatively they look healthy, right? They're not emaciated, they're not cachectic. Well then, you see your BUN being low, that's a tea and toast picture. That implies that they're not eating. And then if you check the sodium and the sodium is low, and you check your urinosomes, and your urinosomes are somewhere in between, right? This doesn't lie. Your urinosomes will be in between, right? So you might be a little high to a washed out portion. Um, you're going to have urine sodium that's going to be on the lowish side, but not necessarily super low, where it's going to be volume deplete status. And then you're going to see the BUN low, and you're going to see a low sodium. That's tea and toast picture. Then you start asking about alcohol. You start asking about decreased PO intake and so forth, diuretics. This is, this is that scenario, right? So I guess in the tea and toast diuretic component, it doesn't necessarily have to be an elderly person. It could be, you know, someone middle-aged who just, you know, isn't eating for whatever reason, right? Unable to, um, gastroenteritis, whatever the case may be. There's other factors playing a role. But if you want, you cannot feed them and make them NPO, don't give them any water, and they're going to correct because they're going to have daily insensible losses. So they'll lose about a liter a day, half a liter to a liter a day. And then they're going to have daily metabolism, which you're going to have to pull water from other compartments to eliminate that free water. So they will correct. Terrible idea to make them NPO, but they will correct. Now, on the flip side, instead of doing that, you can make them a little water restricted. But what I tend to do is I do the proverbial joke of give these people cheeseburgers. Right? I'm just writing cheeseburger down. Because what are you doing? You're adding a solute. You're adding salts. You're adding proteins. You're reestablishing this concentration gradient. So they don't necessarily have to be on a water restriction. It will help with their correction. But by doing this, you're allowing them to reestablish the concentration gradient and eliminate the free water. That's all you have to do. Right? If why does why do we treat AD, SIADH folks in the extreme setting, right? If the fluid restriction doesn't work, why do we give them 3%, right? Or why do we give them salt tabs, right? Or why do we give them um, demeclocycline, right? These are all ways to mess with their physiology, to mess with this gradient. So since I mentioned 3%, let's talk about 3% for a minute. For the exams... Any type of mental status change warrants 3%, right? In clinical practice, I as a nephrologist have probably given 3% less than five times because unless you are so lethargic and obtunded that the next step is going to be seizing, I necessarily won't give 3% because you don't have to. All you really have to do is give back fluids if it's in this setting or just restrict, right? Give them no fluids by mouth, and they're going to start correcting. So it's very unlikely that you're going to have to give 3%. Now, again, once you have mental status changes, the next step is worsening mental status changes. The, the next step after that is going to be lethargy and uptundation, and the next thing after that is seizures, and the next thing after that is death because you're going to herniate. So 
depending on where your comfort zone is, no one's going to fault you for seeing a change in mental status. Like you see them in the ER, they are AO times two, and then they're AO times zero to one because they're hard to wake up, that they're not going to fault you for giving 3%, right? It's just my threshold is a little different. So you give 3%. Why does 3% work? Because 3% is 512 milliosms or 512 milliequivalents per, uh, per bag. And the bags are usually 100 cc's, right? You start bolusing in these bags, you're really overdoing what the kidney is even capable. You're giving this massive solute load, the kidney has no choice but to shut off its drivers and because you're giving the solute load, you're reestablishing the gradient, and not all of that is going to be reabsorbed. You're going to have this huge solute load, and you're going to have to pull water to get rid of it. That's why 3% works. What's another thing that you can do? Well, you give these people sodium chloride tablets, right? You increase their solute load. That helps in tea and toast and beer potomania. That helps in these cancer patients, right? If they're not able to increase their um, PO intake, you give them sodium chloride, which substitutes for that solute load, and it works. Urea tablets. Not all places have urea tablets, which is probably why I didn't think about writing it down sooner. But urea tablets reestablishes the concentration gradient. It's the same thing. You give them a solute. So if they're not able to take in enough, you substitute a solute, and all of a sudden they're able to expel the free water. Now, demeclocycline and tolvaptan affect the aquaporin channels, right? They think demeclocycline, which is an old antibiotic, decreases the transport of aquaporin channels to the membrane. And then you have tolvaptan, which blocks the aquaporin channels. So these, in the extreme sense, just hinder the ability of the body or the kidney to reabsorb water. Therefore, you're not diluting the concentration gradient that much. Therefore, you're getting more solute. Therefore, you might be, hopefully, impacting how much adiation rash is, rash is released. And on top of that, since you're not absorbing water, you're just dumping all that free water. So people on demeclocycline and tolvaptan, you should give them free water liberally. You should let them drink a lot. While on sodium tablets and urea tablets, you still tend to keep them on some sort of a um, uh, water restriction because they could still potentially overdo it, right? But that's how it works. That's how you trick physiology, right? All you have to do is increase solute in any of these and you will correct hyponatremia might not be the best idea in all of these scenarios, but it will work. You can also make them all NPO and go the opposite direction, where now they have to pull free water from other places, plus lose free water from insensible losses. Again, not the best idea, but it will work. That's how we trick physiology to make this work. So it's actually really neat. Now, since I was talking about 3% for a minute, let's talk about um, correction. The data is very, very clear that as long as you get a patient six milliequivalents above where you found them, you will most likely get them out of any sort of danger zone. When you look at the curves and you look at what um, the sodium level has to be to have any sort of badness, meaning uptundation and seizures, the cutoff is pretty sharp at about 120, right? So if you're greater than 120, you're m less likely to have any sort of mental status event or a seizure event. Now, that doesn't mean it can't happen. 
It could very well happen at 125, right? But it's less likely. If you're under 120, you're more likely to have an event. So, you know, we do and we should be watching folks under 120 a little bit closely and maybe have a lower threshold to initiate 3%, right, if that's where we're at. And that's what I do. The lower the serum sodium is, the more likely I'm apt to give 3%. It doesn't mean I will, but I will probably be more apt to give it. Now, correction is also important. So there used to be a liberal correction between 8 to 12 milliequivalents in 24 hours, right? And that has changed to 8 to 10, and now we're talking about 6. So the rule is 6 and stop. And that being said, and I have it in some of my videos on the modules on NefHacks, and I, I show these graphs that when they had patients that were seizing and they gave 3%, the moment the seizure stopped usually was about six milliequivalents. Now, most of these, the purpose of the study was how much 3% do you really need? And, you know, in all these studies, it showed that they gave more than what was required, right? But again, seizing is scary. But as long as you get them out of that six milliequivalent change, you're going to be okay. And if there isn't anything going on in terms of uptundation, lethargy, and seizures, so they're more on this side of the spectrum, right? They're just maybe a little confused, but they're oriented really easily and so forth. And you probably don't have to give 3%. You don't have to rush this. Six and stop is totally fine. Six milliequivalents in a 24-hour period, and you're good to go. Okay, now that is hard in some cases, right? You have somebody that took, takes ecstasy. Ecstasy falls under this branch right so solid tumors ecstasy and what happens is you have adh discharge and you have an increase in thirst right you become febrile you have insensible losses your osms change so your serum osms change you have adh release and because of that you're thirsty so you start guzzling water you tend to become hyponatremic the thing is these people tend to correct very quickly as soon as the adh is out of their system meaning the ecstasy is out of their system which is about 24 hours Luckily, the data is also very clear that if it's acute, meaning within 24 to 36 hours, so I'm, I'm a little bit more stringent on this, that you can get away with correcting a little bit faster and you're okay. I tend to group this to a 24-hour period. The problem is in a lot of these scenarios, especially ecstasy and so forth, we don't know when time zero was, meaning we don't know when they took the drug and when hyponatremia started, right? Maybe they were on an ecstasy binge for three or four days. Then you don't want to correct them quickly. So it becomes a little messy, but if by chance you know when it happens and you have you know the documentation, oh yeah, it actually happened less than 24 hours ago, you can correct them without any sort of damage because what ends up happening is if your sodium drops, right? So your concentration of sodium drops, what ends up happening is your water content increases, right? That's what it means. So now you have, you know, this is supposed to be a membrane, right? And we're going to call this the brain, let's say, or any sort of nerve tissue. Well, if the water concentration increases, right, or the water content increases, meaning the sodium concentration decreases, the amount of solute is usually fixed. And so what happens is water will flood in. So what's going to happen is the brain's going to start to make compounds, right, or the body, any tissue in general, is going to try to make compounds to lessen this water fluctuation. Now, that doesn't happen overnight, so you have time. So that's why if there's a quick change in 
sodium, you can correct it relatively quickly without any detriment. But if it's been about 48 hours, there's a balance now that's established across membranes, right? So now you have that balance and now you quickly drop that water content so the sodium content increases, what happens? Now you're gonna have a pull of fluid coming out of the cell and what happens? You're gonna have cell death and that's your demyelination. So now you have ODS. So we tend to talk about central pontine demyelination but ODS could be anywhere. Right? And you, it's a variety of symptoms from basic weakness to locked-in syndrome at the extreme. So that's why you need to go on the slower side. So as long as you're not uptunded and lethargic, you're not at risk of anything bad happening, you can take your time. If you want to go three milliequivalents a day, great. Hospital might not like you because you're taking too long, but you're not going to do them any harm by any means, which is kind of what you want. You don't want to do harm. But if it's an acute drop, you can quickly... Uh, treat and acutely change them 8, 10, 12 milliequivalents without any sort of detriment. Now, let's say you overcorrect. Let's say they're seizing, you dump in all this 3% or you're giving them fluid. What's going to happen? They overcorrect, they go more than 6, more than 8, more than 10. What do you do? Well, you have a grace period. So they overcorrect, you can bring them back down right? Not as far. So you can start giving them free water to bring them back down and you have about a 24-hour window. So it's kind of nice. So you don't have to panic and rush. Now, I wouldn't wait. It's not something that I would say, oh, I'll wait till the morning to give them free water. You know, I would do it that evening and if I'm woken up at night, I would do it. But I'm not worried about automatically throwing them to locked-in syndrome because this takes days for that to happen, right? And I never thought that this was a thing, you know, it's written in the books, everyone, you know, talks about it, but who has actually seen it? And it wasn't until I was a resident, and I was a third-year resident, and one of the nephrology attendings, a patient at another hospital, this happened to their partner. And the patient was overcorrected, the patient was fine, they didn't call nephrology, and what ended up happening is a couple days later, after the patient was discharged, the patient come back, came back with weakness. And when they did an MRI, lo and behold, there was changes. So it happens days after the fact. And, you know, the nephrologist was brought on late. It was terrible. It was a terrible situation, you know, but it does happen. And there are people that are more apt to having this develop. And who are these people? We're looking at the alcoholics women for some reason, all right? We're looking at those with poor PO intake, so poor PO. We're looking at hypo-K, so hypokalemics. And if I guess if you're doing ecstasy for a prolonged period of time and it's been enough time where you do have equilibration and then they, you know, the ecstasy's out of their system and they quickly overcorrect. So young folks, right? That's why I'm putting them in there. So these are the people that are more apt to have this change. And it all makes sense, right? If you have poor PO intake, it's very easy to fix. And if you had a poor PO intake for a long period of time, because that's when hyponatremia develops, it doesn't happen overnight, it takes a while, right? You're going to have slow equilibration. So these are the people that come into the hospital, they have a sodium of 107, and their AO times three say they're feeling great, right? These are the ones you got to be careful. So poor PO intake. Hypokalemia kind of goes with po poor PO intake, as does alcohol abuse, because these all kind of go together, 
right? Alcohol abuse, poor PO intake. And what happens is at the end of the day, a positive charge is a positive charge. So in these individuals, as they are getting supplementation and they're getting correction, they might also be getting some potassium chloride with it. Well, if a positive charge is a positive charge, what's going to happen? You have an increase in extracellular potassium, which means that's going to go intracellularly, which is where it belongs, and you're going to have extracellular sodium come out. Right? That's what happens. So your sodium concentration goes up a lot faster than what you were expecting it to by giving um, your by doing your normal correction of you know IV fluids or fluid restriction or whatever the case may be, the meclocycline, all that. So these people tend to overcorrect. So you got to be very cautious. And these are the ones that studies have shown are the individuals that will develop any sort of ODS. So when I see an alcoholic or someone with poor PO intake or hypokalemia, I'm very cautious and I move slow. Um, doesn't mean that in you know the elderly and so forth I don't. It's just I'm a little bit more cognizant that these people will be the ones that will have a problem. If the older person corrects you know at eight in 24 hours and not six, it's not the end of the world. Nor is it really the end of the world in these individuals. You know the hypokalemics, the poor PO intakes. But I just become a little bit more cautious and I'd like to go a little bit slower. That's all that means. Finally, I want to circle back to 3% because I really should have said this earlier. How much 3% do you give, right? Well, if you're seizing, you give it until they stop seizing. And if you have to give a whole ton, you give a whole ton, and then you slowly give them D5 water back to bring them back down so you have an average of 6 to 8 milliequivalents in a 24-hour period, right? So, Because the next step after seizing is dead, so you don't want to mess with this. You want to continue to give 3% until they stop seizing and then slowly bring them back down over, you know, within the 24-hour period. But let's say they're, you know, they're a little out of it. You're worried that they're going to progress to seizing. You decide to give 3%. So there is an equation for it, but the rule of thumb is they will, if you give them 3% at the rate of their body, at their body weight in kilograms, they will correct at 1 milliequivalent per hour. So if somebody's 70 kilograms and you give them 70 cc's per hour of 3%, they will correct at 1 milliequivalent per hour. Now, in reality, it's going to move a lot faster. All right? It's not going to be like, oh, they have to correct by 6. It'll take 6 hours for that to happen. They'll probably correct a little bit before that. So you do have to still watch them, but that's the rule of thumb. So what we tended to do, and this is true when you do the equation, is we tend to be a little bit more conservative, and we tend to run it at 30 to 35 cc's per hour. And you will technically run at about half a milli equivalent per hour. Buys you a little bit more time. They'll probably correct still a little bit quicker than you would like, but that gives you more time to stop, and then you can just do nothing and let them rest. And if they're going to start correcting because of eating and so forth, you can give them some free water with that. So that's how I would approach it. That's how I would do it. So hopefully that uh, gives you enough information. Hopefully you had a lot of fun listening to these podcasts on hyponatremia. I know there's three big ones for it, but what we're going to do is we're going to start talking about hypernatremia next and then hypokalemia and start moving down the lines. So take care, enjoy these, and I'm looking forward to hearing some of your comments and questions.